Start time, date, October 9, 2019, time, 12, 7.58. All right, uh, welcome back, everybody. We have a great uh, set of panelists, a room full of people, and a room that fits everybody. So I think we can go. Um, let me welcome you to this uh, session that would look into uh, China and the WTO towards a better fit. I'm going to try to uh, speak uh, little, mostly because uh, this is a bit of an icy territory. I will let uh, the panel speak uh, a lot. I will let uh, them um, tell us, uh, tell us uh, what uh, First, give us a bit of a sense of diagnostics, uh, and two, uh, tell us what uh, can be done, just to situate this discussion. I want to uh, first start from where we are today, reform of the World Trade Organization, a reform uh, that obviously has issues that we all know because we've been discussing them uh, for a long time, uh, but uh, which are a bit the unfinished business of the World Trade Organization a reform that also has to uh, address issues that are relevant today that did not exist uh, 20 years ago, but are relevant uh, today that are also part of the landscape uh, in Geneva, the so-called new economy. A reform that has to look at uh, members and what kind of commitments uh, members take. A reform that has to look at improving the processes of this organization, uh, finally, a reform, and this is an urgent uh, one, uh, that uh, needs to uh, make uh, our dispute uh, settlement work and work properly. Now, in this reform, within this reform, there is another reform, or there is another discussion about another reform called reforms in China. Twenty years ago, and now I'm moving 20 years back, uh, China became a member of the World Trade Organization. Accession was a game changer for China. Accession was also, uh, let's say, a game changer for the rest of the world. Now, it's not the WTO that forced reform on China. It's that uh, Chinese leadership used the WTO to force reforms at home. It's a bit of a different proposition. Uh, many of these um, reforms have taken place, uh, major reforms, uh, but it is, I guess, fair to say that the assumption uh, when this happened was that uh, this path would continue. So, and that this path would continue uh, to progressively uh, align uh, China and the Chinese economy uh, with uh, the rest uh, of the economies uh, of the World Trade Organization. And the same can be said of other countries becoming members of the organization. If we had this discussion about Russia, uh, Vietnam, uh, or Saudi Arabia, the discussion would be also about that. Now, China is China. I guess this is why the room is full. And uh, what uh, I uh, would like uh, to ask uh, our panelists is, are the assumptions that uh, under which all of this happened 20 years ago are these assumptions still valid? Has anything changed? And if so, what is it uh, that has changed? So let me start uh, with Andre. And then uh, I will move uh, to Petros. Then I, I will move to Shankun. Uh, and then I will move to Chad. Briefly, before I give them the floor, um, Andre Sapir, a fellow, uh, senior fellow at Bruegel, 
Petros Mavroidis, uh, Columbia University, Shankun Lu, uh, Director Ledeco Geneva, and last but not least, Chad Brown Peterson Institute for International Economics. And with this, Andre, the floor to you. Thank you very much, uh, Arancha. Thank you, everybody, to, to be here. Thank you, uh, Arancha, for uh, chairing and animating this, uh, this panel. And thank you to all the, the, the panelists. Uh, Petros and I uh, have been working uh, on a book, which we hope will come out next year, on this very topic uh, of China and the WTO. I have some copies of a, of a paper, preliminary paper, of what we have been working on. And uh, the, uh, the starting point is precisely uh, what you discussed, uh, Arancha. You know, what has happened over the last uh, 20 years? Why are we here uh, discussing uh, this, uh, this issue? So let me put a few points, and, you know, all of us would put their, their point. I mean, let me put a few points. Um, I think uh, I will say, I will make it under three headings. One is about China, what has happened with China the last 20 years. One, what has happened with the U.S. And third, uh, what has happened with everybody else, including the system, the WTO, the world. Uh, let's put it in this manner. Uh, let's start with, the, with China. Uh, now, uh, the growth and the transformation of China over the last 20 years has been formidable. Uh, we have never seen uh, anything of, of, that, uh, of that sort. Uh, China was a large country. Everybody knew uh, that this was going to be a game changer, uh, the entry of China in the, in the WTO in 2001. Uh, but it was a much bigger uh, game changer than I think uh, anybody had expected. Uh, the rapidity of the growth, uh, really the rapidity of the, of the transformation, and Obviously, there is the other aspect, the uh, economic system uh, of China. Uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, there was clearly an expectation, uh, at least on the part of uh, other countries, uh, those that were the incumbent countries uh, in the WTO when China entered, that there would be more convergence. Uh, we always knew, everybody always knew, and that was why the uh, protocol of accession was a long protocol of accession that took many years to negotiate was indeed because of those two features, the size of China and its uh, economic uh, and, social, and social model. And I think it's fair to say that on those two grounds, on the size, you know, it grew even faster uh, than one, what one had expected, and probably the convergence uh, that said, you know, rightly or wrongly, people were expecting of China, of the Chinese model, has been less than expected. And I think those two factors really are the key factors as far as China is concerned. Now, second, there is the U.S. Uh, even before, obviously, China entered into uh, the uh, WTO, uh, already in the early 90s, uh, you know, Jagdish Bhagwati, a friend, uh, talked about the diminished giant syndrome. Uh, that was much before the entry of, of China in the WTO. So it's clear that although uh, the United States uh, was the clear victor 
of the uh, of the Cold War. Uh, nonetheless, in terms of economic uh, performance, uh, well, new countries were coming in, even say, before China, before it was Japan. Uh, it was about uh, Europe. It was about other uh, countries uh, and issues of competitiveness in the U.S. all date back from the 1990s, before the entry of uh, of China. You know, all the debate. Uh, with Krugman, uh, all, of, all of those affairs. So I think this diminished giant syndrome, one could have expected that uh, a rising country and a partly declining country uh, would, be, uh, would be a major issue. Uh, and hence, indeed, I think it was great to have the entry into the WTO and you know, to try to manage those issues in, in the WTO. And that's the last point that I will make here, uh, is obviously the state of the WTO. Uh, the state of the WTO, partly related to China and the United States, but there is obviously a bigger, there's a bigger agenda when one is talking about reform uh, of the WTO. I suppose in this session we are only going to concentrate on, on the China dimension, uh, but there is a much broader issue uh, of which one can say the Doha round uh, and the failure uh, of, the, of the Doha round is only one indication. But the membership has, has, has transformed itself, again, beyond the U.S. and, and China. And, uh, okay, the WTO uh, is in need uh, of, uh, of reform. Uh, one needs, in a sense, to rethink, uh, and we knew that one needs to rethink uh, the, global, uh, the global governance, uh, the global governance that, that emerged from World War II, where the U.S., and the, the Western countries were obviously the, the, the main players. And that happened also with the, uh, with the crisis. The, the, the financial crisis uh, has played a role in this. Uh, when the crisis started back in 2008, uh, one needed to you know, move from the G7 to the G20. That was a realization that the world has changed. And uh, yes, the world has changed. And that has all kinds of implications for global governance, uh, including uh, at the WTO. So I would say those are the three things that have changed completely in the last uh, 20 years. What has happened in China, continuation of a trend that had started earlier in the U.S., and then essentially the, you know, the, uh, the role of advanced economies and of emerging and developing countries, and the need to rethink global governance to deal with that. Uh, in a sense, this is now more than ever uh, because of this transformation of you know, slowly diminishing uh, giants and fast rising new ones that one does need global governance, but one needs global governance where everybody is on board. And we will talk, in the, I think, in the second part about what, uh, what to do. All right, so we've got the aging, uh, we've got the growing, and we've got lots of adolescents that are changing. What do we do with the house? Uh, that's your thesis. Petros. Okay, thank you very much. You don't expect me to contradict Andre. We've been working on this book together for over a year. <laughs> Otherwise, it'd go to a, to a shrink. Uh, and we're almost done now with the book. So I just, I will compliment. I just said one thing, which I think is, to us, to both of us, was very important when preparing this book. Uh, and that has to do with a really more disaggregated level, the protocol of accession of China. I, uh, I read a lot of, of stuff regarding, I mean, I, I learned a lot by reading the book of Peter Williams, which is a fantastic book on protocols of accession in the history in the GATT. And one thing that comes out when you read this book is that the GATT, in the, until China, had to deal with small centrally planned economies. That was not an issue, Hungary, Romania, 
you could absorb them fast. Interventionist states like Japan, but not a big interventionist state like China. That was the first. And they found it very difficult to absorb a big interventionist state. Now, why is this the case, in our view, of course? Well, in our view, there's a problem, of course, we have imperfect information about the future. How much can you see in a protocol of accession? Now, the question is, is the WTO a safe box? Is the WTO a regime which will induce change? And that's where Andre and myself, going back into the history, our thesis is that the liberal understanding on which the GATT was predicated was never translated into explicit language. This language was in the ITO, but not in the GATT. It was, ne it was not translated for obvious reasons. The GATT was uh, contracted between 23 homogeneous players. There was no need to say free investment, competition laws and stuff. That was taken for granted. I mean, countries from Holland to, uh, to the U.S., for them it was sine qua non. Now comes China. Comes China, which has none of this. You can do only so much in the protocol of accession, and that's the contribution of Peter Williams. You cannot do things beyond the, what we call in our previous paper we did together, WTO extra obligations. You cannot ask China to respect human rights in a different way or change the regime to democracy in the protocol of accession to a trade regime. And the outcome is, well, because you can do so much. You had inadequate safe box, you have the problems that you have nowadays with China on all these fronts. Thank you, Petrus, for this complimentary view. Uh, let me now uh, ask Xiangkun. Uh, uh, you have uh, been part uh, of uh, this journey of getting China into the WTO. How does it look like from your end? Well, I mean, I, I studied my journey humbly with you and Pascal when I was posted in Brussels and uh, when China was doing the last uh, two rounds of uh, negotiations with Pascal on the accession. No, I mean, much has been said by, by previous two speakers. So, uh, let me just humbly compliment, as a Chinese, I mean, it's, you know, uh, it's a difficult job. I got some former colleagues here watching me. Uh, <laughs> the thing is that my role is simply to tell what people are discussing in China. And then when I go back to tell them what people are discussing here, I think that's my humble role. So here... First, about the assumption, I mean, if we go back to the history, uh, looking at the various statements or everything about China's accession, you would find something familiar we are still talking about today. Uh, one assumption is, of course, China will open its markets. And Bill Clinton, uh, on March 9, 2000, and say that that's a one-way street. China will uh, open its markets towards the U.S. products and services. And Pascal also said that the cost of exporting to China will be reduced a lot with tariffs and non-tariff barriers going down. And uh, so that's something, of course, I mean, we don't disagree that uh, China has done it. Uh, but the other thing I think it will be more important, and I think that's behind our discussion today, is that I think Pascal said that the direction set by the accession and the systemic changes that I expected. I think that's the thing uh, people expect from China uh, behind the accession. And by the way, Lamy uh, Pascal said uh, on October 2nd, 2000, in London. And here, it, this is something I would say arguable because it could be a beast, it could be a beauty in the eyes of different uh, 
people. I don't want to go to in the details. Uh, Petros has uh, and uh, Andre has touched upon a little bit. Uh, uh, for me personally, I I think even the best scenario that China's reform is slowing down, and China is not opening up enough, and Chinese system poses uh, challenges towards the WTO system. I don't think they are totally wrong. But of course, the reasons and the feelings are mixed. I mean, uh, in China, uh, debate like this is taking place on, uh, at the same time. We we also, I mean, you know, very strange in Chinese system. We also have reformists and conservatives, and uh, some conservatives uh, are telling the reformists that, uh, hey. Uh, you say that China acceded to WTO, China learn, could learn from the U.S. and others and all these things. Uh, and then to, to, to be more market open and to be not unilateral and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, this one country. So they say that you have professors already in the street selling things for money. And you ask the students to sit in the classroom and behave and read books. So that brings me to uh, my second point is that is this assumption only about China, what China should do, and what's the systemic challenges, uh, uh, transformation, everything. And at, uh, in the same statement, Clinton in 2000, he also said, that, I will quote him, we must expand trade in a way that reinforces our fundamental values. Trade must not be a race to the bottom. We will continue to our efforts to make the WTO itself more open, more transparent, more participatory, and to elevate the consideration of labor and environment issues in trade, so on and so forth. Yesterday, you heard uh, uh, Professor Jeffrey Sasher say that, well, he said, if not the U.S. attacking the uh, system, we will not discuss about the fate of the WTO. So, so I mean, the assumption is on both sides. Again, what has changed, I mean, just to, to add a few words, of course, Chinese speaker, and we say that the emergence of rise of China, and then people expect China to be a leader, and China wants to play that role, but maybe in a different way. And the U.S. is smaller. I don't touch upon that. I mean, uh, I mean, smaller in terms of retreat from its leadership. But coming back to econ economic system, this is my humble personal view: is that for China, the economic system, I don't think there's a heavy political appetite for them to change the economic system. So the thing here is that when we are see, say that how China fits into the WTO, the other thing, how the WTO evolved to accommodate, if not the system, but potentially the spilling over effects of the system, how this system may affect the interests of other members. I think that should be the focus of the uh, discussion. Uh, so I will stop here. Thank you. Okay, so we seem to have a consensus uh, on uh, one thing, which is the next session uh, you should ask for uh, from the WTO is a session on the U.S. And I'll gladly chair that too. But for now, let's just stick to China. Chad, over to you. Um, so first, thank you uh, for the opportunity to be here. And thanks all of you for, for um, accommodating us this morning. What you all went through, I want you to think of it as kind of a metaphor, right? So we wanted to prove a point to the WTO. So we scheduled ourselves in a really small room. 
<laughs> to show them that this is a really big issue. And the, the WTO has been very late to the game in realizing just how critical this issue is. Uh, but you have helped make the, make the point for us. So, so, so thanks for playing along. Okay. Um, Andre, uh, especially, and the other, other panelists as well, have laid out the broad case for, for um, what has happened and, and what's changed. Uh, I want to start to get into some of the details. Uh, of what, what the current challenges are so that we can begin to have a more concrete discussion of, of the imminent challenges uh, and potentially what one might do about them. Um, so from that perspective, I'm going to lump them basically into two buckets. Uh, one is on the issue of, and again, we're going to focus a lot on, obviously this session is about China, but as we talk about these things, we're going to realize that a lot of the issues that we, we speak about with China uh, involve a lot of other members of the WTO. They involve kind of systemic issues, and so we're, while we're framing it in terms of China, we don't want to isolate in and, and make China think that it's, it's the only one uh, that, 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 that has to confront these, these challenges. The first of the two issues uh, is on subsidies, industrial subsidies, state-owned enterprise um, uh, and, and things in the, the, in the state capitalism model um, that effectively generates subsidies in ways that we, we don't see elsewhere around the world necessarily. Uh, and we'll talk about that. The second is on the issue of foreign investment in China, this issue of forced technology transfer, uh, protection of intellectual property, uh, joint ventures, and, and things like that. Uh, I think these are the, the two broad focal points. There's a lot of other things that we can bring into the mix as well, but those are, those are the two. I want to start my, my discussion right now on the first of those, uh, on the issue of, of subsidies, and, and hopefully we can go into the other one as well. So I'm an economist. Uh, I play a lawyer on a podcast, um, but... <laughs> Uh, I primarily play, play a multilateralist on the podcast, too, um, but I'm primarily economist. So as I come at this issue, the first thing that I'm confronted with is why is it that, 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 that China in this issue of subsidies is so different uh, from what it is that we've confronted historically? We've got rules on subsidies in the WTO already. Uh, they were in the GATT. There were some. We've got the, uh, we've got the agreement on subsidies and countervailing measures. Uh, we've got the agreement on agriculture. That's got what, what is it that's wrong, and what is it about China that makes the current rules uh, insufficient? Okay? So uh, I'm going I'm to go through, as an economist thinks about these things, and in some of my, my later interventions, hopefully I'll get to some of what I think are some fixes. The one plug I'll, I'll put for, for my work, yeah, Petros and Andre, they've got a book. Um, but I put things out on Twitter, so <laughs> much shorter. No, actually, I have a paper on, all, on, on my thoughts on this stuff with Jennifer Hillman as well, so I'll point you to that, to that afterward. But on the issue of subsidies as an economist, I think there's, there's a couple of issues, one of which, of course, uh, we, have to, we have to confront, which is just a lot of countries do these kinds of things that, that China's being accused of doing. It's just China is so large economically that it has impacts on other countries, right? As economists, we, we frame these as international externalities, right? They, the decisions that are made in China are transmitted to, to other countries around the world. Now, from the subsidies perspective, some of those things are positive. If, if Chinese taxpayers uh, want to subsidize certain activities and, and that leads to cheap goods flowing into my market, the normal economic response is, hey, that's great. Uh, you know, if you want to pay for me getting cheaper stuff, uh, that's excellent. So, so we have to begin to confront where does our basic economic model break down uh, in, in that context. And I think there's maybe two or three different ways in which it does. One, not all the competition with China is just in, in, in my market, so we compete in third markets. And so sometimes the subsidies uh, are, are going to uh, erode the profits or take away profits from firms in other, on other markets as well. That's my, one reason why we, why we might be concerned. 
Uh, some of these subsidies are to strategic industries. So the argument that I was making initially about how my consumers benefit from these subsidies in, in the form of low prices, sometimes the subsidies can, can be involved. We think of Boeing Airbus, right, is the, is the traditional example of strategic trade policy, not strategic military, but strategic trade policy and economists speak uh, uh, sort of examples. Uh, the subsidy can give my firm a first mover advantage into the, getting them into the market first, uh, forecloses others' opportunities to be there, shifts profits to my firms, right? We might want to deal with subsidies for those kinds of reasons. Um, sometimes the subsidies can lead to um, overcapacity. Uh, and I think this kind of also feeds into the, some of the, the narrative that, uh, that Andre was talking about on the United States' side in this, the China shock, right? There's been recognition that some of the adjustment pressures that have been felt out there around the world uh, as, as, as China and other countries have, have emerged into the trading system uh, were unexpected, right, or were bigger than anticipated. Uh, it wasn't as easy as economists sort of thought for workers to be able to move to different jobs, to different sectors, to retrain. Um, and so when you have a, a country that has a model of whether it be state-owned enterprises or, or a system uh, that doesn't, when global shocks hit, when, when doesn't absorb its fair share of those, those negative economic shocks. It doesn't allow its firms to go into bankruptcy. It doesn't lay off its workers uh, and force them to find new jobs. That the countries that are more market-oriented take a bigger hit there, right? So there is sort of an incompatibility that we have, to, we have to recognize. And then the last one is, you know, it may be in some instances in which these subsidies, there is kind of the, the standard concern about predation. The, ultimately, you're fueling industries that become so large, they have you know, a global monopoly power, which uh, firms from, from one country can then possibly abuse. And we do have, you know, all countries would, would love to do this, try to do this kind of thing, but we do have some evidence on the record where China has actually done this kind of thing, whether it's thinking about raw materials, rare earths, uh, using export controls, where they have had dominant positions in, in certain industries uh, to restrain those things once they have that market power and to raise world prices. So I think from an economist's perspective, there's lots of reasons why we might be worried about these things. But obviously, there's a lot there that we would have to get into the details of when we're thinking about potentially crafting new rules. Okay. Sorry, I thought you were going to move into your second uh, chapter, which was uh, first technology, but maybe uh, it's a good moment, uh, a segue uh, on your end. Uh, we've started from a big uh, macro. Uh, I think we've, uh, we are in agreement that uh, reforms in China are slowing down. Uh, we are also in agreement uh, that there is uh, an element of externalities of what happens in China that has a dimension over and above. Uh, the dimension that uh, disciplining uh, subsidies uh, or uh, forced technology transfer or intellectual property rights protection is a specific dimension that this discussion has when we discuss China. But I agree with you, Chad, that we have a structural issue that is, in a way, a bit of an unfinished work uh, in WTO if we are to uh, capture these new practices. Uh, I want, Andre, uh, and now we've, we've zoomed in uh, subsidies and we've got the second issue being uh, tech transfer uh, in the interaction with intellectual property rights. What's your view uh, from there? So, um, I mean, one of the reasons uh, why uh, we are writing uh, why we are writing this uh, this book is because it's a it's a big uh, it's a big issue. Number one and number two, uh, because we don't like some of the solutions. Uh, that are being uh, uh, 
put forward. Now, what are the two solutions, um, and maybe to characterize them in a bit uh, of, a stark, uh, of a stark manner uh, for the sake of argument, uh, what are the two polar solutions that are put forward that we, we, do, we don't like? One is, uh, let's call it the Trump solution, uh, is regime change. Uh, there is an incompatibility, what we just heard uh, in the discussion. There is, an, let's say, an incompatibility between the WTO system and China's system. Hence, this issue of towards a better fit, that, that title, you know, how to make a better fit between China and the WTO. So one solution is, well, China is to change, regime change. So nothing short of regime change will do. China promised, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of uh, arguing along those lines. China promised, entered, you know, with the view that, or predicated on the view that, you know, entering would serve to continue to converge. Regime change would occur, and uh, the WTO membership would, 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 would provide that, uh, that framework. And nothing less, well, no, we are disappointed. Uh, it did not occur. No, it needs to occur, or, you know, one of the two has to change here. Or the WTO will collapse or China changes. So that's the regime change. Um, there is the other uh, extreme view, which we call, uh, fairly or unfairly, the Roderick uh, view. So one is the Trump view, one is the Roderick view. The Roderick view is, well, you know, there is diversity. Uh, and by the way, why is our model a superior model? Why should China or any other country say, this is, this is the model. Yes, no, we entered into WTO and we converged towards your model. And by the way, uh, in the meantime, you guys had the financial crisis. So what's so great? You know, I didn't think to start with that your model was so great, but no, that you had this huge financial crisis at the heart of, of the center, let's say essentially in, in the US and in Europe. You know, why, what's so attractive about your model? And, okay, we have to uh, allow, this is the world, that uh, diversity. And uh, it's a WTO that needs to adjust. Everybody has to adjust the fact that yeah, there's a Chinese model, there are the Russians, there are all kinds of this huge amount of diversity. And that's that. So, uh, I mean, we, uh, we say, you know, there, there are elements. Of, obviously, we can't reject entirely all of those views. Uh, but uh, we don't think that any of those solutions is really going to take us, uh, to take us forward. So we argue for... Uh, a solution of reform of WTO rules uh, that will enable uh, a number of issues to, to be taken care of, including, indeed, the, uh, the subsidy and the, uh, and the technology transfer. Let me just say one, one last thing, and then uh, give, uh, give uh, Petros uh, will explain much better than, than I sort of what are the proposals that we make. One thing that we draw from history, because part of what we do in this, in this book is, as Petros indicated, there's been diversity before in the GAP WTO, never on the scale uh, of China, but diversity has been there since, all, since the 1950s. So uh, what we recall very much and discuss is the issues between Japan and the United States. So Japan accession to the GATT in the 1950s, and then clashes that came between principally the U.S. and Japan, and that are very reminiscent. I mean, we, we quote uh, all kinds of uh, stuff, you know, from the time that you would think it's about China. 
Okay, it's very, very, uh, very, very similar. And there was also after. Uh, Japan acceded to the GATT. There was fast uh, rise, and there were a whole uh, series of issues. The geopolitical, obviously, relationship was not uh, was not uh, was not the same. But our view is that, and I think to be relevant of today, our view is that the bilateral relationship that there was between the U.S. and Japan, let's say the solution, let's put it in this simple term, quote, the solution to the Japan problem a scene from Washington uh, that came through the bilateral discussions, that is not something that we believe is feasible uh, in the relationship between the U.S. and China. So we do not believe, essentially, that all of those bilateral discussions that there is between China and the U.S. are going to solve, quote-unquote, the problem. Uh, it may solve some political, sure, there's political experience, there are elections, I mean, all of those things, you know, there's public opinion. But the issue of, that we are discussing today, the fit between the WTO system and the Chinese system, and, by the way, other countries, uh, as was discussed already, we do not believe that this will be in a lasting manner be solved, nor in the interest also of third countries, uh, will be solved in bilateral. So, only a multilateral WTO solution is really feasible and desirable. And then we put forward a number of, uh, of uh, concrete uh, proposals that, as I said, Petros is much better placed than me to, uh, to present. So, Petros, on to the solutions now. Solutions? No solutions. <laughs> no. Uh, but I think, I hope, at least. By now we've established Andre is the big picture guy and I'm sort of the nitty-gritty brush tracks technician. So, um, first of all, drop the word solutions. It's very inappropriate. I think where is our thinking on this? But um, we should not close our eyes to the fact that China has made very important changes. I mean, it's not that China 2019 is China in the 80s or the 90s when it joined the GATT. No, the WTO. A number of things have changed and continue to change. Maybe it's not at the level Western countries would like to see China, but China is not static. China has changed quite a lot. And we, in the book, we have gone through a number of initiatives, especially in the IP area, in the last years. Now, with this in mind, if to us the two big issues, and I, think, I don't think it's just Andre and myself, we didn't just pick two issues, we looked a little bit at what are people complaining about is state-owned enterprises and transfer of technology. Transfer of technology, uh, let me start with this maybe. What is the claim? The claim is, well, if I want to invest in China, since there is no uh, BIT with China, I have to do most of the time a joint venture with a Chinese company. Chinese companies will not allow me, will not say yes to FDI, foreign direct investment, unless if I transfer technology. Fine. When we started looking and say how much of an issue, we start always with the question how much of an issue it is, we realized there are a number of cases of voluntary under-enforcement here. There are companies who prefer to bite the bullet. They say, I make so much, money, so much money in this huge market, I better sit down, I bite the bullet, I don't complain very much, I transfer a bit of technology, anyway, I cannot keep them out forever, end of the story. But then there is another issue, which is even more important for us, and this is where we part company with unilateral solutions. How much can you do in the WTO against private practices? Not much. I mean, if you don't attribute this behavior to China, 
there's nothing you can do. All you can do is say, I have to rethink the current regime. So to the extent that this behavior is purely private behavior, there's nothing much you can do. Full stop. We don't say there is no under-enforcement. There is. And we have empirical evidence to that and support now in the book. But there is also this big issue of private behavior. Now, SOEs, quite frankly, to us was a big surprise that you, when you negotiate with China, you know that the SCM agreement says nothing. On, even the term doesn't exist. Uh, this is probably due to lack of coordination across the demanders. They were each trying to negotiate bilaterally with China. There was nothing like trilateral commission that we have nowadays back in the 90s. And uh, you have scattered provisions on SOEs in the protocol of accession. That's about it. Now, when we compare this to instruments like the TPP or CPTPP now, and uh, USMACA, the new NAFTA, where you have super elaborate provisions state-owned enterprises, which have some sort of negative listing, plus what kind of things you can do, what kind of things you cannot do, and so on and so forth, then you realize the WTO contract on those two issues, NSOEs and forced, forced it's a little bit different with private behavior, but on SOEs for sure, leaves a lot to be desired. And for us, the only way to do this is by renegotiating the SEM agreement. Now, if you do it unilaterally, you would do it unilaterally. Why would the U.S. do it for the world? I mean, a, forget collective action, but what is the incentive for the U.S. to do it for the world? There's zero incentive. The only way you can do it in a way meaningful for the world trading community is, in our view, by adding to the current SEM agreement, and we have some specific proposals inspired by the uh, original agreements that they mentioned. So I'm going to uh, go straight to Chad on this, uh, on the uh, solutions part. I mean, solutions, obviously, it's quote-unquote. If there was such thing as a solution, I guess we would have found it by now. But let's say avenues uh, for uh, driving this issue uh, to a multilateral fora with multilateral solutions. Chad. Perfect. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I have no solutions, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to phrase it differently. But, but I, I want to pick up on, I guess, maybe what Andre's point was about the diversity issue, right? So we have to recognize from our starting point that these are different systems, and we've got to figure out in what ways they're different if we're going to then get to the point of, of proposing solutions that would accommodate uh, potential differences, right? So differences. So one of the problems that's been raised in the system, uh, I'm going to focus on subsidies here. So I'm going to punt on the, on the tech transfer and the, and the IP issue at the, for the moment. Subsidies. One of the big issues that we hear about here is the lack of notifications, right? Not just China, lots of countries fail to notify. Behind the, the even more fundamental than the notifications problem, though, is just complete disagreement on what is a subsidy, right? How you define a subsidy. And I, I think what uh, traditional GATT, WTO market-oriented you know, economies would think of as a subsidy and what the Chinese system might think of as a subsidy are, are very, very, very different. So let me give a couple of examples. On this issue of, of state-owned enterprises, right? and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to caricature this a little bit to, kinda, to, to, to make out the, the point a little bit clearer. Um, so the allegation is, you know, in China, it's got a state-owned banking system. Uh, a lot of the energy is provided by state-owned enterprises. Um, key inputs, therefore, provided to lots of the rest of the economy are or can be effectively subsidized, right? Provided at what below market rates would be, at least relative to what downstream firms, say manufacturing companies, what have you, in other countries of the world would face when it comes to energy prices, 
uh, what it takes to borrow money for, to buy capital equipment, uh, to, to rent land, all, all of these kinds of things. Um, in certain sectors, obviously, you know, this has been, been very clear, or at least alleged, right? In steel, if, if the upstream companies, the key input providers of, of makers of, of hot-rolled steel, the key input for all the downstream steel makers are state-owned enterprises, they can provide these, these key inputs. Same thing for aluminum. If all the primary aluminum uh, is being either made by, by state-owned enterprises or is receiving these really cheap inputs because they're, they're being effectively subsidized somehow, the downstream firms benefit. So here's just a, a fundamental question of in... WTO language, the, the SCM agreement, right, is that a subsidy? Definitionally, is that a subsidy? And this has been played out in the, in the litigation space uh, and is still ongoing into the question of what is a public body, right? The traditional way that we think about this, and again, I'm, I play a lawyer, but I'm not one, but so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this stuff up as I go along. But in, in WTO legal terms, only public bodies can give subsidies, can grant subsidies. So the question is, can these state-owned enterprises be thought of as public bodies? Can they effectively be giving these subsidies because they're not technically a government? Okay? Economists, I might say, well, it's having the same effect as a subsidy, so it's obvious. Yes, that, that thing should be treated, if you're going to call it, force it to be called a public body in WTO language, we need to think about that. Right? But I think that's, that's one of the diversity issues of interest. Another is um, China uses export taxes, the differential application of export taxes across you know, value chains, uh, pro imposing ex higher export taxes and export restrictions on upstream products, not taxing downstream products, differential rebating of voluntary or of, of value-added taxes across the, 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 the supply chain in ways that also effectively act as subsidies, what an economist would call a subsidy. Right? But while there are some disciplines, and China has taken on some disciplines through its protocol of accession on, on export taxes, um, they still have manifest themselves as, as showing up in practice. Right? So there is this diversity of systems, but they lead ultimately to this conflict, at least in the subsidy space, uh, between what's going on in other countries and what's going on in China. That being said, and this is sort of where we are in this, in this discussion, the really big problem is we have no idea how big a problem this, are, this, this issue actually is. And, and, and Petros pointed to this on the, on the tech transfer front. We've got, you know, in that space, uh, under-reporting of, of concerns there. In the subsidy space, we really don't have a really good idea about how big an economic problem this thing is. It's a very big political problem. But is this something that we should actually economically be concerned about? How big are these negative externalities that the Chinese system has on, you know, on the United States, on Europe, and on other countries that we need to craft international disciplines on? So my first solution... To this, to this issue is we need to figure out how big a problem this is. And to my mind, a way to path to go to deal with this would be to reflect on what we did in the 1980s when we were confronting similar problems in the world of agriculture, right? And in, in agriculture at the times suffered from lack of disciplines under the GATT system. Um, lots of countries were doing lots of different types of, 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 inc of, of domestic support for agriculture coming through lots of different policy instruments. Uh, it was very difficult just to assess how big an issue this was so that negotiators would have a, a framework to, to prioritize over, right? So what happened back then is we had our friends at the OECD. Anybody here from the OECD? Your task with doing, yes. So that your first task is to figure out how big a problem this is for us, right? Take the insights that we drew from, from the agriculture uh, uh, framework of the 1980s and establish thing, these consumer subsidy equivalents, the producer subsidy equivalents for all of these different crops. How much 
subsidies were, were lots of different countries giving around the world, so that we then have a framework to, to, to engage on this issue. Um, the OECD actually has done a little bit of this work in one sector. They have put out a fabulous study on aluminum earlier this year that I would recommend everybody take a look at, showing just how complicated this subsidy issue there is. Um, but I would argue that we first need to do that kind of exercise across lots of different industries so we can see just how big an economic issue this, these types of things are so that we then know what it is that we're negotiating over and we can have some sense for how to prioritize. Thank you, Chad. Um, I want to uh, ask Xiangkun, uh, you said there is uh, in China, like in the rest of the world, uh, the for and the against, the forces that uh, want a bit more reform, a bit more opening, uh, and the forces that are not uh, necessarily playing for a bit more opening or a bit more reform. So if we were in the, if we were looking uh, for constructively support uh, the forces that want reform in China. What's the deadline and what's the message? Uh, deal with Trump first. Well, and, and we cannot deal with Trump uh, unless uh, we refer the problem back to the U.S. voters, but there are many non-U.S. voters here, so I don't think that's, uh, that's a promising avenue for, now, for us. Uh, no, the the thing. Let me risk myself by stepping on the IC territory you have just described, because I enjoy very much listening to Chad. Uh, even to a quite extent, I don't uh, uh, agree totally what he said, because a lot of things, as he said, that are not clear. We need hard proof, because we need hard proof. <laughs> To, 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 to indicate that uh, the, let's take uh, SOE for example, to indicate that uh, uh, SOE uh, uh, is providing a kind of subsidy. Uh, we don't have that yet. And we could also, uh, we need also hard proof uh, to, to, to say that state-owned uh, banks are providing below market rate or whatever. Because if it is below market rate, we already have a SCM agreement that covers you, so that's no problem. But the thing is that people are, if not imagined, but saying that because it's state-owned and banks, and then de facto it's a, it's a, it's a subsidy. That's where I think the, the missing linkage is. We have to do more details and things about that. And, of course, we need a lot of things about whether SOE leads to overcapacity, so on and so forth. My friend Salman Evident has done a lot on that. I think you should read on that. And even SOEs vis-a-vis -vis public bodies, we already have public body, uh, I mean, reports, which also are trying to tackle that, which is different from what we are discussing here. So, no, but those are all technical things we could easily sit down, quietly discuss like this. What I mean about IC, and, uh, IC territory is simply when... Pedro Sandri mentioned the word regime, the system, and they're kind of uh, expecting China to transform in a way, a kind of convergence. The thing I, I'm saying, because you are not the only one saying that, uh, two days ago I was bringing my students here in the WTO, and then one of Western friends has said that, hey, telling my students, when you guys joined the organization, we, we Western people, have a naive expectation that China will be westernized, okay? I mean, he meant more than just economic. He meant both political and economic terms. 
So that's where I think that we're getting on the IC territory if we continue discussion like that. So let me be frank here, my humble personal opinion. In China, you see a leadership which is very confident about its own model, about its own system. And Xi Jinping him, himself said about this full confidence, confidence of its model, uh, its system, its culture, what else. But, but you see a con conflict here. And coming back to what I want to say, is the system itself per se a crime? Is the regime itself per se a crime? We have no history testimony about that because we have, as you guys said, China is just so different. There's nothing like this. Japan was different in the 80s. Uh, when the Eastern European countries joined the organization, they were different. They were smaller. They changed. They joined the EU. China is never like that. So you guys have to deal with that. I mean, between. Huh? Uh, the thing is that, uh, for me, coming back to what I want to say is that I think it will be wrong if WTO enters into a discussion where you, how to say, blur the delicate line between the political and economic system, because you know that the two are linked. And the state of enterprises, of course, in Chinese uh, eyes, politicians, is a, a, a model which supports its political system. So I think, coming back to our question, what do we do here? I think we should be careful because China is feared, and a lot of people, not only the leaders, not the politicians, professors, common people, has a fear that Trump has a, is doing everything wrong to support the reformists in China because it enters into military confrontation. Uh, it uh, talks about uh, political rivalry, and uh, contain China not to become number one, whatever. And there's a political agenda in China widely shared, uh, and which I think that creates a problem uh, there. So here in the system, I think we should carefully try to focus on technical issues, not into enter into the uh, minefield of political things. And by technical issues, I would say that state and enterprise, again, as an example, it's, it's not as, uh, how to say, beauty of China. I mean, European countries have for decades as state enterprises. You have also gone through a difficult period. I mean, remember such a uh, uh, moment when she nationalization the private ones and uh, went the other way wrong. Uh, the other way, uh, they, so, so the thing here is that let's, let's, Stop talking about systemic, political things, aspects. Avoid that and focus on technical issues. That's what I call the, the spilling over effects, the externality effects. And if the Chinese state-owned enterprises pose a challenger, do more analysis, why they pose such challenger? Is there a subsidy? Is there a subsidy uh, which is not because of the uh, state-owned price per se, but because more of the way or the government sports or whatever, do more research, uh, and then and that's where we should could divide the two political and technical issues and try to try to focus on that. So I think that's the way that you support the reformists in China and try to uh, correct that fear and probably move the things ahead. Without that, I don't think you will have a way out. Thank you. So basically you're telling us if we want to help, let's make sure we frame this discussion uh, in a way that is palatable uh, for those uh, that we want to listen to the message. Uh, at this point, I want to open the floor uh, to your questions. Uh, 
No uh, takers? Yes. We'll take a few questions, and then uh, we will ask the panelists to address them. Sir, second over there, third over here, fourth over there. Um, in terms of measuring the uh, measuring the problem, I think um, the uh, OECD issue is a maybe a good idea. However, we've got to remember that the OECD took a long time, and ultimately, the agreement on agriculture did not choose the solutions that the OECD had proposed. Therefore, I think that the Addressing the issue in the ASCM cannot wait, um, cannot wait until we get some sort of quantification from the OECD. Thank you. There was the gentleman over there. Yes. Well, uh, thank you. Peter Kierkegaard from the Confederation of Danish Industry. Uh, now, of course, uh, subsidies in, in China is, of course, the big issue, or maybe the lack of transparency on subsidies. Um, so far, it's been difficult to deal with because of this lack of transparency. Um, recently, we've seen the, uh, the U.S. Um, taking steps to um, counter Chinese companies that are not abiding by uh, rules on export controls and on human rights by listing them on uh, SDN lists. Would, would you see, and, and apparently that is, is maybe a little bit effective in terms of, uh, of sort of scaring some of these Chinese companies into maybe behaving a, a little bit differently. Would you see the U.S. administration uh, wanting to go that way as well on subsidies and starting to list companies that do not abide by transparency rules on subsidies? It would be WTO non-compliant, I guess, and everything, but uh, it seems like this current administration doesn't care that much about that. Thank you. Thank you very much. The gentleman over here. Merci, Madame la Moderatrice. Je suis Biro Gawara, représentant du CECID. Eh bien, je suis très content qu'on a pu finalement trouver une grande salle pour le dialogue avec le grand géant parce que cette petite salle était difficile. Et je me rappelle, en 2001, l'ancien directeur général de l'OMC, Mike Moore, disait ceci, je cite, « Avec l'adhésion de la Chine à l'OMC, en tant que 143e pays membre, l'organisation recouvre son caractère mondiale, car elle est acceptée de tout le monde. La Chine a accepté les règles et les conditions de l'accession la, après d'âpres négociations de 15 ans, qui n'a pas été facile. Et certains commentateurs à l'époque étaient pessimistes quant à la satisfaction de la Chine et, et à sa conformité aux règles et de l'OMC, vu la culture chinoise qui vient de loin, qui est du millénaire, et la Chine, quand bien même, est partie et en 1950 du GATT et est revenue après. Mais la question... Ma question s'adresse à M. Changou. Qu'est-ce que l'adhésion a apporté et à l'agriculture chinoise et au tissu industriel chinois Et deuxième question s'adresse aux différents éminents et panélistes à l'état actuel des choses, est-ce que 
c'est la Chine qui doit se conformer aux règles de l'OMC ou bien c'est l'OMC qui doit se conformer et aux, aux pratiques de la Chine pour sortir de l'impasse. Je vous remercie. Merci beaucoup. Uh, there was someone at the back of the room. Um, thank you very much, uh, Amar Breckenridge. Um, as an economist not pretending to be a lawyer, um, the definition, a definition of subsidies will be a system of incentives that shifts risk from uh, the private sector to state actors, uh, which reduces the hurdle rate of return that expands production. Uh, and building on the Roderick critique, to what extent do you think China's subsidies are a reasonable response to missing markets for risk and other sorts of market failure? And secondly, how would a systemic review of subsidies also take into account the increased demand for subsidies and related measures to, in, in other parts of the world, in particular in response to uh, a transition towards um, low emissions, greener forms of growth trajectories, which would require substantial amounts of public investment to complement market-based measures uh, such as emissions pricing? Excellent question. Thank you very much. Uh, Mia. Yes, thank you, Maria Senius, Chief of Staff of Commissioner Malmström in Brussels. I have a question for Mr. Xian Kun, who I think he said in his first intervention that while China has no appetite to change the system, it is ready to play a leading role. But in a later intervention, it sounded more like he put the burden on others to do more research. So I would like to come back to the question of what is China ready to do to play a leading role in reforming the WTO? Thank you. Thank you. Any other question at this point? Sir. Thank you. Uh, Henry Gao from Singapore. Uh, well, um, I get kind of a conflicting signals from the panel. You know, uh, I, I, if I understand it correctly, I think um, some people on the panel are seeing that uh, the problem is the size. is because China is too big. And uh, but the 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 message that I often hear is that it's not about the size. It's, it's because China has a totally different system, and the WTO cannot accommodate such system. If I understand correctly, that is also the message that I got from some of the panelists. But seeing that uh, you know when the get the WTO was designed, it was supposed to deal with countries which are full market economies. But uh, China has turned out to be rather different. So therefore, the existing rules are insufficient, and we need new rules. But I, I sometimes uh, wonder if that is indeed the case, because I think the WTO rules are flexible enough to accommodate even uh, a country with a different economic system like China. Take subsidy, for example. Now, uh, Chen has mentioned the uh, issues with the public body, for example. But uh, the public body jurisprudence, even though, I mean, we might debate whether it's the correct jurisprudence, but uh, if you uh, look at the current way it is uh, formulated, and also the way things are going in China, I think there is room that it could be applicable to China, because uh, it, uh, according to the uh, appellate body jurisprudence, the most important thing is whether or not the uh, SOEs are uh, exercising government functions. And now you see latest development in China where the uh, central government uh, well, or the party is requiring party sales to be established in all kinds of firms in China, not just the SOEs but also private firms. 
So uh, that could provide the basis for seeing that uh, they somehow you know, become public body, and uh, there's uh, a growing trend in that regard. And another problem is uh, the problem of uh, uh, getting the uh, information on uh, subsidies, which uh, I believe Chad also mentioned, the lack of notification. Uh, again, that could be solved with uh, this provision in Article 15B of China's succession protocol, uh, which basically says if there are special difficulties of getting information of Chinese subsidies, you could use this provision. I'm really surprised that Article 15DB is not used while everyone is uh, focusing on 15A, uh, the non-market economy uh, in anti-dumping investigations, because 15B basically has the same methodology, and the best part about 15B is that it has no expiration date, which means that you could use this 100 years after China's succession. Uh, and uh, I, I would like to, uh, uh, to see if the panelists want to respond to that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Henry. Let me just uh, start with Chad. Um, so, so maybe I'll take a couple of those. Um, so I think the, the point, Henry, that I, that I would make to you is I think, yes, a lot of these things um, could be um, litigated at, at, through, through the dispute settlement system. But I think we're now at the stage where uh, one or both sides is going to end up extremely unhappy with the decision. And now that we're opening up the whole can of worms, let's just negotiate over these points, right? Let's, let's come up with a, a, a definition of public body that both sides can agree on and not what the appellate body tells them they need to agree on. Because uh, I think we're now at that point where the system itself is under sufficient stress that the negotiators need to get back to the table to deal with, with some of these things. Um, on the point about the OECD uh, taking too long on the, on the agricultural front uh, and, and we need to, do, to open up the, the SEM agreement and negotiate it now, my, my worry is that what they're negotiating over right now is not being informed by reality, uh, that they're, that they're very much under political pressure to do things, and they may be stressing the wrong things, and they may rewrite the rules in ways that, that aren't going to be useful for solving these long-term problems. Uh, and so that's my concern. And, and we should take fault of that as economists for not having uh, responded to these issues quickly enough and coming up with estimates for how big these challenges and problems are. We need to do that now. And so if the OEC isn't going to do it, I would, I would implore other you know, think tanks and, and economists out there to, to add this to your research agenda, but we need empirical answers to some of these questions. Um, uh, I, to the question about uh, Peter's question about uh, adding subsidy uh, receivers to the entities list, I think you should watch closely what the United States is already doing uh, in terms of how it's uh, how it's. And this is also coming into the discussions of, of reform of the SEM agreement. Uh, so, mo so far, a lot of the reforms are just let's expand the ability to use trade remedies, right? Define public body more broadly to make it easier to impose tariffs. Uh, when subsidies are seen out there in the world. Uh, let's, let's treat currency manipulation as a, as a countervailable subsidy, right? This is now uh, going through the, the interagency, the regulatory approval process in the United States. Uh, we could soon see this happening in, under U.S. CBD law. Uh, the United States is moving towards the self-initiation of more of these countervailing duty cases. Uh, and so this is, this is happening. Um, and so I think it needs to be, it's not necessarily entity list type of, of framework, but you're going to see them hitting uh, receivers of subsidies in ways that we haven't historically. Um, at some point, we should get into this question of a way, a path out of this. Um, so maybe let me take one stab at this at this point, and then maybe others can weigh in as well. Proactively, right? So um, I'm an American, um, and the Trump administration has, has taken uh, a number of unilateral steps that I would agree are, are not the way to go uh, for a long-term solution to this problem, to, to all of these challenges, I should say. Um, 
that being said, they've, they've drawn attention to it and brought everybody to this room in ways that, you know, hadn't been the case three years ago. So hooray for them uh, to get a, every, all of us so excited about this stuff. Um, how are we going to get out of this? Well, politically, uh, as many of you know, and as probably some of you were involved in, behind the scenes, uh, there is this trilateral process going on uh, that the European Commission and the Japanese government has largely been spearheading. Um, the Americans have been involved in a bit as well, uh, where they are trying to craft and thinking about crafting some new rules on the issues of subsidies, uh, industrial subsidies in particular, and, and the forced tech transfer issues. I think that's a step in the right direction in the sense that it's thinking about rules. Um, obviously, it's not going to go far enough because clearly you're going to need ultimately to bring China into that conversation as well. This is not going to be a deal that you're just going to be able to foist upon China and say, sign on the dotted line. Uh, and ultimately, there's a lot of issues, if we're thinking about some of these things, that the United States and Europe and in Japan could clean up as well, um, especially when it comes to subsidies. So we do a lot of things in the United States at the state and local level um, that could be brought in. Europe doesn't have that problem, or for the most part, because of state aid in, in the commission. Uh, but they've got other problems, uh, whether you know it's agriculture, though we have agriculture subsidy problems now in the United States as well. But my point of all of this is uh, this is now going to be a, a big moment where you know if we get past the current crisis, um, there is going to be a big moment to do a lot of things uh, that need to be, be addressed. And so I think coming up with some of the technical details and, and questions and proposals, getting the economic evidence as to which ones of these should be prioritized, now is the moment that we should be doing that because we're going to very soon find ourselves in a situation where we're going to be able to be optimistic and take advantage of, of the political opportunity that's been presented to us. Thank you very much. And if I may add to the list of uh, issues that we could clean up, also there is such thing as planes uh, that are floating Sorry, that out was there. Sean Kuhn. Yeah, before I get to the other questions, maybe just one quick comment. Our Danish friends' uh, 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 comment on the Chinese companies being listed in the U.S. And uh, the one funny story in China says that actually a lot of Chinese listed companies or those who are seeking investment are actually trying to get on that, that list because that proves you are a high-tech company. Uh, because people say that Trump is not uh, uh, is not about human rights, it's not about other things. About basically, it's about whether China will take advantage of the high take uh, how to say ground there. Okay, against the U.S. Well, no, the 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 one thing uh, the if I understand our CCTAS friends' uh, question very well, I I won't spend too much time. It's basically about what uh, WTO accession has brought to China mm -hmm. ag and uh, industrialization. I mean, there are plenty of reports and papers on that, Chinese and foreign, of course, and uh, that's actually explained one thing about this so-called China rise, China become bigger. Because when we joined the organization, when Arantxa was working with us then, and she heard about this too many times, I said, agriculture and automobile, those are the two sectors China was extremely frightened we call we say that it's wolf come in and then we open the door for wolves the western competitors to come in so china's agriculture is go, uh, is going to be destroyed and automobile too the thing is that my first uh, hearing go to the chinese people's congress uh, the chinese parliament was about the soybean and then people ask that why do you open doors with those quotas still then and then so on and so forth but uh, afterwards, a few years, we see that nothing, not nothing happened. We did see a lot of uh, small farmers 
being, how to say, thrown out of the market. On, but generally speaking, Chinese agriculture sustained. Chinese automobiles even flourished. And many other industrial uh, sectors also uh, took advantage of the accession and developed ourselves. So that's always a story we share with others, is that uh, acceding to the WTO, keep your markets open, and do some hard, uh, heavy weighting reforms on your own. I mean, Chinese commitments to the WTO, WTO Plus, and so on and so forth, helps you, okay? But on the, on the other hand, uh, we do see that China big, but still vulnerable, even including the industrial sectors. Uh, just last uh, month, the Chinese former minister of industry, he published a nice article saying that uh, uh, if you're looking uh, behind the big figures, you will see that China is still vulnerable here and there, uh, kind of high tech and so on. So, so I won't repeat that. Okay, so that's that's my humble question to that. Uh, the the other the answer to the Mia is simply I I stopped in going into details when I say that China is ready to play a leadership role uh, because of a time constraint. Because there was another subject we have not discussed uh, described this special and differential treatment developing country status, which is a big issue. But I I. I, I don't think, uh, think Andre and Petros have appetite for that. I didn't say anything. Uh, but coming back to your question about uh, uh, how do we see that China is ready to play a leading role in reforming the WTO. I mean, the, these, there are two aspects. First, about how China supports the WTO reform. Of course, we have seen a lot of China say that it's going to stick to the multilateralism. It uh, uh, continues to support the WTO as the central platform for further liberalization and investment uh, facilitation. And China uh, trying to contain the China-US trade war and still uh, not uh, overdo it. Of course, so there are some suspicion that even China signs anything with the US. There will be obviously some non-MFN I mean, results, which I, I disagree always with Chinese. Uh, the other thing is that China has been putting proposal on all these subjects we are talking about, be it uh, traditional issues, uh, uh, I mean, and also on the new subs uh, fishery subsidies, and then uh, the new issues of e-commerce and the trade uh, investment facility. China is trying to play that. But on the other hand, of course, China also said that the difficult – let me say a few words about special and different treatment, if you allow me. Please, please. <laughs> Because, yeah, the thing is that uh, for China, the hat is very delicate. It's very dear, the developing country, because that's political. Chinese uh, leadership, uh, Xi Jinping uh, himself said that, that we are a developing country for, for now and for the long-term future. But on the other hand, China in its position paper on WTO reform also said that we are ready to take upon uh, more responsibility, make more contribution. Contribution. That's what uh, Henry Gao, our friend there, has just uh, put into his recent paper. I would encourage you to read that. But on the other hand, I think which is more important uh, how China could help playing that leadership role is that how do we deal with Chinese own reforms? I have said this in recent months in China is that I say that China's reform is slowing down. China is not only one to blame. It's not China doesn't wish because we failed the Doha. WTO is now moving ahead. We have a Trump and then so on and so forth. So I don't go to explain to that. But what I said in China is that when we argue that U.S. should be less unilateral, I said in China, China should be more unilateral. Unilater unilateral in a sense that China should be ready 
without, with or without WTO reform, with, with or without Doha, whatever round we are going to do, China should unilaterally open these markets uh, and then try to deregulate on many things, including investment, and trying to reform its uh, state-owned prices in a way with probably without touching the political system, but economically there are many things China should do unilaterally because that's going to only be good for China, of course, at the same time for other members and for the WTO. So I think, but the last word, and then come back to what Henry has said, that to do all these things, as I said always, WTO reform can never be a China reform. We're discussing about China here, but uh, uh, Chad also said that many people need to do some heavy lifting things on their own. So we have to come back here. I, I think that's what uh, touches most in the paper by, by Andrew and Petros, is that only here that could happen. Bilateral between China and U.S., or whatever the uh, trilateral mechanism which China has a lot, uh, won't work. I mean, do it wherever you can, but come back to the WTO. That's where you get work done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Petros? Okay. Four very brief points. Um, the paper says cumulative, big and different. That's what the paper says. That's not either or. We say the WTO never, the GATT never had to deal with a very big, very different country. It's first time China. The second point is I agree with the gentleman over there about SCM. You don't have to wait for quantification. It never happens. Actually, precisely because there's a lot of uncertainty as to the size of those guys, That's all agreements I know of, they contain chapters on both SEM and SOEs. The th third point is there is a lot of self-inflicted damage in the WTO by those guys who now get upset with China. I mean, I wonder how does the EU or the U.S. delegation feel when in 2000 they said, Article 6.1 of SEM, let it die, which reverses the burden of proof on serious prejudice. How do they feel, those guys, nowadays? They could have a 5% subsidization and tell China, now you go and explain yourself. There's no 6.1 anymore, because these delegations decided to let this provision die a slow death. No, Arantxa, you were around at the time. Now, the last point, and my only disagreement with my dear friend Louis, Yes, there are SOEs around the world, not just in China. But the difference is what? In the European Union, for example, to a less extent in the U.S., but in the European Union for sure, there is a state age regime. State-owned enterprises in the European Union cannot behave like state-owned enterprises unless if they have first observed a very serious state age regime. Now, I grant you that state age in the European Union, the, there are subsidies which we leave out. I mean, subsidies which essentially you, you address distortions. Fine. I mean, this should not be the substance we should kill in the WTO. But here, once again, who should you blame other than the EU and the U.S., who when they decided in 2000 to let 6-1 die a slow death, they also led to oblivion Article 8 on green subsidies. I couldn't have said it any better. Andre. You're good in Spanish. <laughs> not sure about that. Um, so Petros has uh, brilliantly uh, taken all the points that uh, I would have added. Uh, let me just add two elements. One on, is on the last issue, um, the state-owned enterprises. Uh, I think essentially the issue is that one needs to go in a path that divorces ownership from behavior. So, you know, one can be uh, uh, agnostic uh, about ownership and not get into a fight about, you know, which enterprise is state-owned, what does state-owned mean, private, is it really private, all of those kind of things. 
uh, that doesn't uh, in the end matter. Okay? And that would be, in a sense, part of a regime change, you know, wanting to say that they cannot be state-owned enterprise or the share of state-owned enterprise can be only so much or whatever. Uh, so it seems to us that the, 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 path, uh, the path of reform is indeed about having language that relates to, to behavior. Uh, regardless of ownership, let's 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 forget about that. Now, the last point I, I, I would make is to um, the, the the gentleman who, who uh, talked about uh, subsidies in general. Is is there not a case to uh, to have subsidies? Sure, uh, obviously uh, you talked about the market uh, market failure. There's lots of market failure out there. And the regime, uh, the regime uh, recognizes that, obviously. So uh, a regime is not one uh, that bans uh, subsidies because, indeed, uh, subsidies may, I say may, not necessarily will, but, but may be uh, welfare-enhancing because they may be correcting uh, you know, plenty of market failure out there, no, 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 no doubt. So, yes, I think the, the, the regime uh, has to recognize that you, you spoke about, uh, I don't know, climate issues, you know, all of those. Yeah, there's, there's, plenty, of, there's plenty of room uh, for that uh, in Europe or in the, uh, in the WTO regime uh, for that. So, you know, nobody's, I think, arguing that uh, subsidies uh, need to be uh, suppressed. I mean, that's precisely why there is a SCM agreement. Uh, but there needs to be a system. Uh, in order to be able to deal with those that are deemed by uh, other countries to be problematic, and then you go. So let me just say on, on, on this point, uh, I think I and I think we, we, we both, I think, very much agree uh, on Chad's view, which is that you know, the, 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 the litigation versus or the judicial uh, route uh, versus the legislative uh, at this stage. Uh, so, yes, obviously, we want to have a system, uh, a judicial uh, system, and you want to have litigation, appellate body, and all of those matters. But at this stage, I think we, we very much agree with you that the issues that we are facing, that we have been discussing today, they do require uh, that the membership uh, owns responsibility and, uh, and therefore does take legislative sort of makes reform, and only then can we go back to, uh, to the judicial uh, process on that basis. We cannot obviously ask the judicial to, uh, to take those very, very hard uh, decisions. Thank you. Before I wrap up, uh, Chad, you wanted to come in. Yeah, just, just very quickly, because I think Andre raises a really good point. So I think what economists would say is that it is very much the behavior that matters, right? We don't care about the ownership, but what, what matters is the behavior. But the current problem, at least as I understand it, in the rules is the evidence here, right? So suppose there, there is somebody getting subsidies, well, to show adverse effects and serious prejudice. You need, you know, a couple of years' worth of data of showing these bad things to materialize before you can make your case in, in WTO litigation. Well, by then, you know, entire industries may have become established unfairly in, in some sense. Well, okay, Petros, but we're, 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 we're now in a new world, so let bygones, right? Okay. Okay, but we've got to deal with this, is, is my point, as a, as, a, as a negotiating issue in ways that probably we didn't have to if we weren't confronted with this challenge today. Okay, so this, uh, is, uh, this has been a very uh, interesting conversation. We've learned three things. Uh, we've learned uh, that it matters how we will frame this conversation moving forward. That depending on how we frame it, uh, we have more chances or less chances of success. 
uh, and that uh, in this uh, narrative or this framing, uh, there are important elements, uh, reforming WTO, so multilateral solution for all, uh, and uh, with obviously uh, dealing with externalities. The bigger the externalities, the more it has to be dealt with. We've heard, uh, second, uh, that it would be worth oiling this discussion with a bit more facts and figures, so uh, an encouragement to all of you, whether you are in international organization or a think tank, to continue to put uh, in this a bit of uh, material that will help uh, those that ultimately would have to negotiate. Finally, uh, what uh, I take is a big focus on subsidies, uh, a big focus on uh, uh, with uh, tech transfer intellectual property rights around it, but a big focus on subsidies and with a big focus on ensuring the competitive neutrality of whatever model or option you choose for your economy, that the competitive neutrality has to be in a way, uh, this is the concept that we have to be uh, working uh, around. And uh, uh, that, uh, this I will add uh, myself to the mix. Uh, sorry, there was a fourth point, which is on process, uh, that uh, trilateral uh, is uh, bilateral. Uh, does not seem to be taking us very far. Uh, trilateral can oil, but ultimately uh, this has to come uh, to the multilateral table. Final point, the next five-year plan that China is working on is for 2021. Thank you very much. Uh, if you're interested, uh, we should uh, make sure that Bruegel hosts uh, another conversation to take uh, this one uh, forward sooner rather than later. A big applause for our panelists. Thank you, Arantxa. There are some copies of the paper by uh, Petros and I. So if you're interested, there are a few copies here. Thanks. Martin, take, take for the family. Yeah,